Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 348. It is a listener Q&A episode. That's something I've never done. In the seven years I've been doing the podcast, I have have a weekly plus episode for plus members, which is mostly a Q&A episode, but I've never really opened up that format for all listeners. This week's podcast topic wasn't coming together as well as I would like. And so an hour before I was set to record, I sent out an email to the Insider's Guide list asking for questions. I didn't do that very well, though, because I mistyped the reply email. So everybody that tried to reply got their email bounced back. But I still got dozens of questions from persistent listeners that were able to find an alternative email and get a hold of me. Topics we'll cover in today's episode include the endowment model, teaching our kids about money, favorite investing books, cryptocurrency, valuations, investing in individual stocks, donor-advised funds, the housing bubble and potential crash, FDIC insurance, and some additional topics. I won't be able to spend too much time on each topic, otherwise the show will be too long, but let's kick it off. Listener asks, what is my view of the endowment model and the legacy of the late David Swenson? I became an investment advisor to endowments and foundations in 1995. That was when David Swenson was very influential in overseeing the endowment at Yale University. What the endowment model is, is it's essentially the idea that a university endowment has an infinite time horizon and as a result can afford to be more illiquid in their investments. The endowment model has a high allocation to non-publicly traded investments, private equity, including venture capital real assets, real estate, can include hedge funds. It's a viable model for endowments and foundations. It's what I practiced for over a decade as an investment advisor. But it's difficult for individuals to access the top-tier managers. And many of the products available just aren't institutional quality. The fees are too high. The experience of the managers is too low. And so, by and large, I think it is difficult for an individual to replicate the endowment model. In fact, it's difficult for most endowments and foundations to be successful with it because they are often not able to get into those top-tier funds. Next question is a member that would like to educate his sons about investing. They're age 13 and 10, and his idea is to give them each $100 to invest how they see fit. He'll do all the trades for them on Robinhood and would like to give them six to 12 months to try it out. 
He wants to know, have I heard of anybody doing this? And do you think it's a good idea? I have generally avoided contests where you invest $100 and then pick a stock or pick an investment, and then the time horizon is 6 to 12 months. Because when it's a contest, whoever wins, it, it tends to be luck because the time window is so short. It's a great idea to give your kids some money to try investing to pick an investment that they like, but use it as a way for them to hopefully get more interested in investing, but also teach them that six to 12 months isn't a very long time. What I found with our kids, the best way to teach them about investing is they're more interested once they have their own money and then want to invest it. They get their first job and they, they actually have an individual retirement account. And that's been that way for all the topics. I just wait for them to show an interest and then we go about learning. What five investment books have had the biggest influence on your investing? I listed out four. There are many, many great investment books out there. And these are not necessarily the best investment books. They just happen to be the most influential investment books at the time that I read them. The first is Complexity, Risk, and Financial Markets by Edgar A. Peters. I read this, I believe, around 2004. And it was really my first introduction to complexity theory and the unpredictability of financial markets. Those same lessons were reinforced in the other hugely influential book I read back in 2007, The Black Swan by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Similar influential book on the same topic, The Misbehavior of Markets by Benoit Mandelbrot. And the reason these were influential is for many years as an investment advisor, I felt like I knew. I could be highly confident in my decisions. And the longer I invest, the more humble I got and wanted to figure out, well, how do I invest in a way that I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I can at least stack the odds in my favor by focusing on return drivers. From that aspect, then, a more recent book that I read that was highly influential is An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. It's by Alison Schrager, and I really liked her three-step process for managing risk. Decide what you want. Decide if there is a risk-free or low-risk option to get what you want without being harmed. And if there isn't a risk-free or low-risk option, then decide how much risk you're willing to take in order to get what you want and estimate the probability of success and how likely you are to be harmed. The next question is, what has being an entrepreneur taught you about investing? The listener is particularly interested in the idea that owning a stock is equated to owning a share of a company. But as an entrepreneur, you are 100% owner, which means as an entrepreneur, I want to be highly confident that I will survive another day. Being an entrepreneur is very iterative. Lots of experiments. I've been doing money for the rest of us for seven years. I'm still trying to figure out how best to describe what I do and how best to help people. Get constant feedback, but ultimately, I don't do anything from a business standpoint. And the same thing when we ran our advisory firm, we were cautious because we were investing our own money and we had personal guarantees for the debt that we had borrowed. 
Very different if you've raised outside capital from venture capital, where they want you to blitz scale and grow as fast as possible. Oftentimes, the entrepreneur doesn't have their entire net worth at stake. The risk-reward trade-off is a little different. But in terms of how I've run businesses, because it was my capital, much more cautious and a much more iterative process. A listener asked, what do you miss most about managing money like you did at your former firm? I miss my colleagues. I had a long conversation with a colleague last week. I hadn't spoken to him in six or seven years. There are some former partners I talk to much more frequently. You miss that interaction, being in the trenches together. So I definitely miss that. A listener wrote and pointed out kind of a conflict between two different episodes. The first was an episode on the economy is not a machine, where I mentioned the importance of building slack into businesses for resiliency. So by building slack, is they're not as efficient, that the drive for efficiency could lead to breakdown. This year, I did an episode on productivity and how greater efficiency and productivity has actually led to wealth over time, national wealth. Over time, the ability to produce more output through use of technology or other methods is what allows an economy, a nation's wealth to increase. On the other hand, I still think it's possible on a micro level for individual companies to be too efficient, too short-sighted, too optimized, such that they're just not flexible enough. So when a crisis comes along, they break or they just aren't able to adapt as quickly. I recently read Greg McEwen's book, Effortless, and he talked a lot about these principles to clear the clutter find ways to do things using less steps. That's a way to be more productive. Superfluous steps. As we try to clear the clutter, as we try to be more efficient, decide what we want, we don't want to be overworked and be working all the time to where we could be super, super efficient in terms of productivity if we just work many hours. But building that slack in, taking breaks, we try to be more efficient with the time that we use, but not try to use all of our time increasing productivity. Listener asks, what changes have you made since the COVID crash, such that when another crash happens, you will react differently? A question similar to that is, listener was curious how my investing outlook has changed in my 30s, 40s, and 50s. Did I adjust my allocation? Would you still adjust your allocation given the low expected future returns of bonds? What I learned from the COVID crash that was different is central banks were more willing than ever to step in, provide liquidity, back up assets, and to do whatever it took. In the 2008 financial crisis, they were slower to do that because they were worried about moral hazard, that by stepping in or saving the banks or other investors, that that would encourage them to take more risk in the future. This time, they didn't spend a lot of time worrying about moral hazard. We're willing to buy many different assets that they weren't willing to do before. And I think that's one reason the rebound occurred much more quickly. Perhaps when the next crisis comes along, I might not reduce risk as much. We'll see. It depends on the circumstances. Each crisis is different. 
with regard to my investing outlook and how it's changed, I take less risk now than I did in my 30s or 40s. And the reason is I have more money now, a greater net worth, and I have less time. I don't have the human capital that I had in, the, in my 30s that provided a buffer if markets sold off tremendously. As I have built more wealth, as I've gotten older, I have less time to recover that wealth if there's a major loss, in which case I don't have as much in stocks as I did in my 30s. Had a couple individuals ask whether I am enjoying retirement or do I wish I could have worked a couple more years? I don't even consider myself retired anymore. There are many definitions of retirement. For me, retirement means I'm not working at all. I'm just done working for money. I work for money. I provide a podcast. It has sponsors. I provide money for the rest of us plus. I don't work 40, 50 hours a week. It's generally 25 to 30 hours a week. And so what I try to model is live like I'm already retired. What pace can I maintain for decades ahead where I enjoy what I'm doing. I get lots of breaks. That's why I take eight weeks off during the year where I don't produce a podcast. That's why I take most afternoons off, do most of my work in the morning so that I can maintain a schedule for the years ahead and not get burnt out. And a number of questions on cryptocurrencies with China restricting it. El Salvador making it legal tender, and whether I think cryptocurrency is here to stay, and it's relevant. Someone else pointed out that speculations such as gold and crypto, are they worth buying? Because potentially after transaction cost, they could be considered a negative sum gamble. My definition of a speculation is something where there's a disagreement whether the return will be positive or negative. A gamble is something where the expected return is negative. One should not invest in gold or cryptocurrency unless they expect the return will be positive, that it will be valued more in the future than it is today. Otherwise, it makes no sense to do that. I have about 6 to 7% of my net worth in cryptocurrencies. It varies because, as you know, cryptocurrencies are so volatile. Cryptocurrencies will only be valuable in the future if people care, that they consider it a store of value. The challenge with cryptocurrency is you do need an engaged audience. You need the miners. You need verification of the transactions. You don't need that for gold. Gold will be gold a thousand years from now. It will exist. We don't need servers to run gold, which is an advantage of gold. It has a longer history. Why I own 5% of my net worth in gold. But cryptocurrency, and most of my allocation is in Bitcoin. Next comes Ethereum and then some smaller cryptocurrencies. I believe that they will be around several decades from now. They do have no intrinsic value. They do depend on an infrastructure to maintain them. Belief of participants. Most will probably fail. Bitcoin and Ethereum have first mover advantage or they've been around the longest. I like Bitcoin because it's the simplest. The protocol is the simplest. 
I don't know which other fiat currencies will be around. I'd like to think the dollar would be around, but the dollar doesn't yield anything either in and of itself. It has to be put to work. And so I hold crypto as a diversifier, as a currency diversifier. But if you invest in any speculation, be prepared to lose it all because it's quite possible that people won't want to have it in the decades ahead. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Here's a number of questions on valuation and individual stocks. A listener points out that his father, who's 89, just gave him some appreciated stock in McDonald's. And he's not a fan of McDonald's. And he wants to know what I would do. A follow-up question from a different listener is, he points out that my portfolio is primarily ETFs and funds, and I don't invest in individual stocks. But he says there are times when you can find amazing companies trading at very low price-to-earnings multiples. He suggests there's times the stock market can be overvalued, but there might be individual companies that are undervalued. His question is, why shouldn't an individual invest in individual stocks? 
I don't invest in individual stocks because I don't enjoy it. And I'm discouraged by the many, many years I spent trying to identify stock managers that could do better than the index. The stock market, it's an auction market. There's a seller for every buyer. It's a competitive market. And I don't like to compete in areas where I think the odds are stacked against me. I don't have an informational edge to be able to say a particular stock is mispriced because that's what you do when you buy an individual stock. You're saying it's undervalued, that the market, that other investors have it wrong, that the company is going to do better than what other investors assume. If it does worse, the stock's going to fall in price. It will not do as well as the market. Now, that's just me. There are individuals that can do that, but I don't want to spend the time doing it and analyzing a company. There are enough other asset classes, exchange traded funds, closed-end funds. There's enough opportunity in other areas that I don't have to spend time researching individual companies. If somebody gifted me McDonald's, if it was a family member, it depends on whether they expected me to hold it or not. If they had an emotional attachment to it, I'd keep it until they passed. And then I'd probably sell it just because I wouldn't want to have to monitor what McDonald's was doing. Another question sort of along the same lines is a listener wants to know if valuations are losing their significance as a true indicator of a stock's worth. Because so many individuals are buying index funds and companies are buying back their shares, are there more and more investors that don't really care about the valuation that could be pushing up those valuations. Does it matter? I still think valuations matter. Now, a time will come when there are so many passive investors that there are indeed undervalued companies that an investor could get an informational edge, that it does better than what everyone expects and gets bigger so that it does attract more buyers and perhaps gets added to an index. But it takes work. All investing can take some work and particularly trying to identify individual companies. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think the level of passive investment is that high yet. A listener asked about donor advised funds. They point out that charitable donations are very important to them. And they just learned about donor advised funds and wanted to know if they're good vehicles for charitable donations. Donor advised funds are something available in the U.S., perhaps other countries, where the donor gives money to a charity. It could be a community foundation. It could be a donor advice set up at Vanguard or Fidelity to where it's not going to an end charity right then. It's a holding vehicle. And that entity invests those assets. The individual can get a tax deduction for contributing, but they give up control. And there's sort of a gray area because the donor can recommend or suggest that those assets be given or a portion of those assets be given to a charity, which suggests they have some control. But for whatever reason, the IRS has allowed these to exist to where the money is given and then later the donor can say where they want the money to go. Now, I believe that the donor advised fund sponsor still has veto power and ultimate control, but they take those recommendations from the original donor seriously. 
considerations are what are the fees? How is the money invested? Is there an administration fee for the donor advised fund? And those are the considerations, certainly the cost. But I think they can be very effective vehicles for donating assets if you're not sure exactly where you want them to go at the end of the day. Listener asks, how long does it take to record an episode? Is it straight through recording or do you stop and start regularly? It typically takes me about five hours or more to prepare for the episode. Actual recording of the episode takes less than an hour. And I will stop and start. I have stopped this episode several times because my neighbor drove his tractor by. And so I had to wait for the noise to settle down because I record this in a greenhouse at, at our cabin. After I record the podcast, it takes about 45 minutes, takes about 10 minutes or so to do the ads for that week's episode. The sponsor reads, what takes much longer, and this is different from when I started, is I spend way more time in post-production, editing the show, taking out pauses and making sure it's as clear and crisp as possible so that I'm not wasting your time listening to it because your time's valuable. So I want to make sure the final product is the best I can produce, and much of that happens in the preparation as well as the post-production. The actual recording doesn't actually take that long. Now, the listener asked what expenses are for running money for the rest of us now with staff, apps, the site, bandwidth, etc. It's definitely over six figures. Much of that is research cost for the institutional research services to use in, in the show, as well as for money for the rest of us plus. The other cost that's gone up is I, my son works for me half time, so he's, he's staff. We have developers that we pay significant money to to improve the site. We have designers, and so it adds up. It does add up. A listener asks, would you speak briefly about FDIC-insured bank accounts? What are they insured against? The failure of the bank, yes, but anything else, theft or fraud? Realistically, how much is at risk if more than $250,000 in your account? This particular listener has a business, and he has more than that in an account. FDIC is depository insurance in the U.S., only if the financial institution fails. So it doesn't cover theft. It doesn't cover fraud. An investor can limit the risk and be over that $250,000 limit if you're a business. If you're an individual, you can stay under the limit. Businesses may go over, but it's why many businesses put assets in money market funds or just buy treasury bills because they're confident they won't be default. Banks are rated and one could choose a very highly rated bank and not worry about it going insolvent. Just a couple more. A listener asked, is it possible to have too much in any one particular mutual fund or ETF? For example, VT is a huge ETF. Is 100,000, 500,000, or a million too much? What about a percentage of assets like 5, 10, 25, or 50%? With a diversified, low-cost ETF like VT that's invested globally, that could be, and I would be very comfortable if someone had all of their equity assets in that ETF. There's thousands of securities. 
the risk of Vanguard losing this money somehow is very, very small. And so it depends on the particular ETF. But if it's very, very diversified, if it's global, then it could be 50 to 60 or 70% of someone's assets. Two questions on housing. A listener just bought a house that's over 100 years old, paid $50,000 over asking price. It was the eighth offer they had made on the house, the first one that was high enough to, to beat out other offers. And then he read some investment commentary by Lacey Hunt of Hoisington Investment Management, which made a case for slow growth, potential recession, and other things that could go wrong. The listeners mentioned in the past five years, he's gotten divorced, paid down debt, cut spending, saved diligently, and invested with some success. And now he feels like he's bet it all on red on this house. But he felt vulnerable because he continued to rent as home prices skyrocketed. And his landlord might decide to sell. And then he'd have to move. I saw this with a family member. They'd been in the house for two years. The landlord, I believe, is going to convert it to an Airbnb. And so then they had to move. So when you own a house, you're not likely to get kicked out. And so there is some benefit to that versus renting where there is the potential that you have to move. Of course, if you're renting, you, you have the optionality to move. It's easier to move at times. But he's worried about a potential housing market crash or prolonged stagnation. I don't believe housing will crash, particularly in the area where he's at in Colorado, because people want to move there. I did an episode on this about a year ago, how to buy in a hot housing market. But housing prices could stagnate. They could slow down. We shouldn't buy a house as an investment. Sometimes it works out as an investment, but we should buy a house recognizing that unless we continue to fix things, the structure itself can depreciate. The land might go up in value, but the house has to be maintained, which is why we shouldn't rely on our house as our investment portfolio. I include my house in my net worth, but I keep it at cost. I assume it's worth whatever I paid for it and hope that it doesn't go down in value. Now, it, it generally has gone up in value, but it's not until we sell it that we realize the value. But all the things that he, he's worried about, it's the things that I worry about. And it's why I monitor investment conditions, monitor what's going on, provide the service I do because I want to be able to know what the risks are and to make adjustments or just to maintain peace of mind. There's a balance, though. We can get too involved and too worried about what is going on, but we can also put our head in the sand and ignore it. I don't think we should do either one. We can find appropriate sources including this podcast, other podcasts, to have an idea of where we stand from a risk-reward standpoint, allocate our investments appropriately given reasonable assumptions, and then go on with our day. We don't have to be involved in the market every single day. It's one reason I do a monthly investment conditions report for myself, so I can just look at this once a month. Well, here's my assets. Here's where I stand Here's what conditions are. Do I need to make a change? Most of the time, no. As individual investors, we don't have to act right away. We don't know how things are going to turn out, but we can 
be as prudent as possible given what investment conditions are and not feel like we have to outsmart the market. That's one reason I don't invest in individual stocks. I don't want to have to try to outsmart people. I would like my returns to be based on things I can see, the current income and the expectations for some assets that that income will grow over time. I don't see my house as an investment. I think of it as a store of value that it hopefully won't lose money, and I'll get most of my capital back, hopefully more than that, even with the housing crash of 2008. If an investor invested prudently, they eventually made their money back, even though the valuation might have gone down. It's not going to be a high-returning investment in most areas. But actually having a house or having some land It takes up capital that we don't have to worry about investing somewhere else. And I think there's some benefit in that. And finally, a member pointed out that I I say in the show that it's about money and not worrying about it and wanted to know how not to worry about money so much. One way is to realize we don't have all the answers. I listed out those investment books that taught me that I don't have all the answers. So I want to focus on principles. What drives returns? Income, cash flow growth. What am I paying for that income and cash flow growth? That, that's what I can depend on. I can depend on knowing where we are now, that something's expensive, an asset class. Something looks more attractive. Maybe it will work out. Maybe it won't. But by diversifying, by seeking to protect capital as you get more capital, it's possible to invest without spending a lot of time worrying about it to invest in a way that you'll survive for the next day, be it in your business or in your investing. Not to take big bets, to be prudent, use reasonable assumptions, not look at it every day, look at it periodically, and then go on and you live your life and focus on things that are way more important than investing. That's episode 348. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing, becoming a better investor, There's two ways I can help with that. First, consider signing up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. It's where I share about that week's episode. I share the notes and research materials that I use to prepare it and share an essay on money, investing, and the economy to help you become a better investor. When you sign up for The Insider's Guide, you'll get my free guide, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. This is a summary of the key points from my book by the same name. The second way I can help is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Plus membership gives you essential portfolio tools, training, and a community to invest with confidence and achieve your financial goals. There's over 1,000 Money for the Rest of Us Plus members. They continue as members because they get access to a proven investment approach and expert portfolio insights delivered in a clear and concise style they can understand. Here's some of what you get with Plus Membership. Global multi-asset class portfolio examples. A monthly investment conditions and strategy report to help you keep your emotions in check. An exclusive member-only podcast called Money for the Rest of Us Plus, as well as an ad-free version of the regular podcast. And with both of those podcasts, you get written transcripts. Plus Membership includes best-in-class video lessons, portfolio-building tools and templates, as well as access to my portfolio holdings and trades. You'll be able to interact with other members in the member forum and ultimately get the tools and the community you need to feel confident in your investing. 
Plus Membership is a voice of calm and reason amidst the chaos. We'd love to have you as a member. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.